Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. We'll keep Psalm 130 open in front of you, and we will make reference to that as we go. Or if you have a Bible with you, we might look at one other passage along the way. So you might want to have that out. Allow me to pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you that you speak reliably through your word. As we open it, as we uh, give you our attention, you can be heard. So please, would you send your spirit now to uh, open our ears to hear and our eyes to see the glories that your word holds for us and to apply it to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you have ever come to a church and felt, I do not belong here. This place is not for me. Many years ago, the English theologian Carl Truman, he was regularly being asked to come and speak at evangelical churches in the region where he was. And uh, through visiting all these different evangelical churches, he got a feel for the state of uh, the evangelical church in, in the area. And he said, as much as there was to be encouraged by uh, in their love for Jesus, in their, their passion for the Bible, and their zeal for outreach, he noticed uh, one glaring problem. All the songs they sang were happy songs. Now, it might not be immediately obvious. Why is that a problem? And yet, think about it for a moment. So, real life is not always joyful, is it? No. Indeed, it's not. Yet, um, when a person who has been disappointed in the, in the dark depths of life comes to church and it's a song about wanting to dance or about uh, wanting to be a sunbeam for Jesus or something like that, uh, it, it makes them think uh, they don't have anything to do with this place. They, they, I don't belong here, they might think. And as Truman explained in his widely read essay at the time, a few years back, uh, entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? It was a sign that Christians had given up something of the richness of the worship contained in the Bible's own hymn book, the Book of Psalms. Because in the Psalms, while there are songs about joy and praise and, and, and all of those things, there are also many, many songs for discouraged and downcast, for despairing people. Real life is full of highs and lows, and the Psalms give us words to sing from the mountaintops, yes, but also from the valleys of the shadow of death. And Psalm 130 is a song for Christians 
who find themselves in the deep depths. And that's the first point I think we need to see in this psalm, that Christians sometimes face extreme misery and affliction. Verse 1 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. The word depths, when it's used in other parts of Scripture, is always, almost always, referring to the literal watery depths. The deep darkness of the sea. It's the sort of place where sailors drowned and where, where monsters lie. And it, it, it's a scary place. And so the imagery here is of somebody drowning in the deep depths, the water coming over their head and the, the waves crashing. But as many of us who were on the, the, the way day yesterday know, the Psalms of Ascent, the, these 15 songs... Uh, from Psalm 120 through 134, are, are songs that the pilgrims sang as they made their way up to Jerusalem, up to the, the, the heights of uh, where God dwells in the temple. And it only takes a quick look at a map of that region to realize that Jerusalem is nowhere near the sea. Pilgrims traveling from all over Israel or returning from Babylon, they would have no reason to travel across the deep, watery depths. And I think, therefore, we shouldn't read this psalm as a, a, a cry from the, the deep waters of the, the actual sea, but uh, the deep waters of life. The psychological depths, the, the spiritual deeps. And these are the much more treacherous places. I have a, a minister friend whose wife struggles with mental illness. And he likes to say that physical suffering is sometimes terrible, but there is a limit on how terrible physical suffering can be. Because you can only be in so much physical pain, you, you, you can only have uh, so bad an injury or a disease before it leads to death. The, the waves sweep over you and you're pulled under and it's over. There is a hard limit to physical distress, but there is no limit to relational, to emotional, spiritual, mental distress. You can, you can be so overwhelmed, so exhausted, so hopeless, more than ever before, and then wake up the next day to feel like it's even worse today. And that bottomless pit of despair is where this psalm starts. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Usually the, the worse the suffering is, the less able we are to clearly think about our way out of it. When I'm physically ill, uh, Catherine, my wife, sometimes jokes that I just give up and prepare for death. Uh, oh, I have a stuffy nose. I guess this is the end. No point in eating or drinking anymore. Tell Josiah I loved him. And that's it. 
I think it's called man flu. I don't know if any others have had it. It's a serious disease. But more seriously, I, I know that when I feel anxious or I feel depressed, well, that is when I am least able to think about solutions to the problems. I tend to withdraw from others. I, I tend to avoid the problem. I, I tend to distract myself with other things, which only makes me feel worse in the end. And that can be the spiritual reality sometimes, too. In the deep waters of life, we can sometimes be so distracted that every time we open up the Bible, if we can even manage to open up the Bible, we can't focus long enough to get anything out of it. We can be so burdened that we can't even pray. We could be so upset that we don't find any comfort in the fellowship of our church. And that, I think, is the kind of experience that the psalmist is talking about. The psalmist's heart cry is not even for a particular result. Maybe he doesn't even know what he needs. He just says, hear me, Lord. Hear my cry. And be attentive. And if you've ever been in that place, or maybe for some of you, you might be in that place this morning, take comfort from this psalm. God's people, genuine, faithful Christians, can sometimes find themselves in deep misery and affliction. And as if to show you that you are not alone, uh, God led someone through that experience and he inspired them by his Holy Spirit and he took what they wrote and included it in his hymn book. So that you can say, uh, whenever you're going through those sorts of deep depths experiences, that this does not put me outside the people of God. The church is not just a place for happy and successful people. And worship is not just for when we feel nice. That's the, the first thing that we have to take away from this. But what has dragged the psalmist down to the depths? I mean, up to this point, we haven't been told. We don't know why he's in this pit but as we keep reading, we, we find that the, the source of deepest despair is very close to home. Our own sin is the cause of our deepest problems. That is what we come to see in verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? As the psalmist is drowning in the depths, his whole life suddenly passes before his eyes and, and he realizes sin and guilt uh, that comes from it are what have dragged him to this place. And he suddenly imagines standing before a holy God with the, the entire record of his sins in God's hands and he thinks, how can I cry for mercy from, from a God like that? He knows me. 
And that's what makes his legs go wobbly. He says, if that is what you do, Lord, I cannot stand. Who can stand? And why is that? Well, there are many psalms of lament as, as you go through the, the psalm books, uh, uh, psalms, um, where people cry out in desperation due to persecution, due to betrayal and lies and oppression and threats and all kinds of other problems. And those are real problems that some of us will sometimes face. But in all those circumstances, the people of God can turn to the Lord and say, this isn't right. Help me. Stop them. But when we're down in the depths due to our own sin, well, that is right. On what basis can I expect God's help when I have brought myself to that place? How can I cry out for a hearing from him? And, and, and when he assesses the situation, he, by all rights, he should say, well, you've made your bed, now lie in it. When I've rebelled against God, when I've rejected his ways, when I've wronged others and harmed myself, then the record of sin shows that the deep waters are the appropriate place for me. And maybe... We can all think of examples in our own life where we have made a mess of things. I know that I can. So our own sin is our deepest problem because it both harms us and it disqualifies us from help. And this is a deep problem. In fact, I think it's the central problem of Scripture. What hope is there for a person who has rebelled against God? What help is there for a person who refuses the giver of life? Well, there is hope for Christians in deep waters. If the song starts in the deep, it doesn't remain there. The psalmist knows that although his sin has led him to the pit, there is hope for him yet. And it isn't a hope based on himself in any way. Rather, it's based on who God is. And we see the, the basis for Christian hope in verses 4 to 7. But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Despite his sin, the psalmist has all the hope in the world, because forgiveness, unfailing love, full redemption are with God. They're his constant companions. That is to say that God is not sometimes forgiving and loving and redeeming, but he is always forgiving, loving, and redeeming. The same could be said of all his attributes. He is always good. He's always true. 
He's always faithful. He's always able. And so on and so on. Down through the list. He is always all the things that he is. And the theological term for that is divine simplicity. But you don't need to know the technical term to see the importance of it. Some mornings, my son runs into my room, my bedroom, and he announces that his alarm has gone off at the top of his voice. He sort of kicks the door open and and yells out, it's wake time, wake time. And and sometimes he finds me uh, there and I say, oh, that's great, buddy, let's get up, let's go get some breakfast and and we'll go down together. And and sometimes when he bursts through the door, I say, stop shouting, lay down, do not move, we're going to continue sleeping. Because I'm so inconsistent. And every morning I'm either happy or grumpy, and there's, there's no way that he can know. He comes in in the same way and finds a different dad. But unlike human beings who are always inconsistent and changeable, God is always the same, and he never changes. He doesn't have good days when he'll forgive those who ask him and bad days when he'll zap them with a lightning bolt. Forgiveness is with him. Unfailing love is with him. Full redemption is with him. And whoever you are, whenever you turn to him, you will find him with his three companions. That is why the singer who has no leg to stand on can dare to stand before God and ask him for mercy. It's not that he's obliged to forgive, but the psalmist knows the one he's speaking to. He knows his character and what it's like. He is therefore sure to forgive everyone who turns to him in repentance. And friends, that is why you and I can have hope even in the deepest waters of life. It isn't on the basis of ourselves, not even a little bit. It's on the basis of God who has a record of your sins and mine and knows that we deserve whatever fresh hell we've cooked up for ourselves. And yet, when we cry out to him, he hears us. And he will help us because he loves us, he redeems us, he forgives us. That's who he is. And I just want you to reflect on uh, this briefly, that this is the Old Testament that we're in. I was uh, chatting to one of your uh, dear sisters here who who was saying that she was confused about uh, who the God of the Old Testament was in comparison to the New. But right here, we have the God of the Old Testament saying the the sorts of things that we might expect of the the God of the New Testament. The caricature is that the the God of the Old Testament is harsh and full of judgment, but uh, no one who has ever properly engaged with the Old Testament can feel that, can think that. Because here in this psalm and in so many other places, you, you see what he's really like. 
We see that God is full of grace. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to redeem. This is who the Lord is, who he's always been, and who he will always be. If you do have a Bible open in front of you, you might turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, because Paul picks up this imagery of the record of sins, and he tells us how it is that God can both see that we're completely undeserving and yet forgive us. Colossians 2, verse 13 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. And what the psalmist knew of God's character many hundreds of years before is what Jesus proved as he went to the cross. At the cross, we see the love and redemption and forgiveness of God fully displayed in Jesus. Paul says that it was there that he took the written code, the record of sins that stood against us and condemned us according to the law, and he took it and he nailed it to the cross. Things that make your knees go weak that you know the Lord knows about you Christ nailed it to the cross. And if he would go to such great lengths to deal with our sin, then how much more than the psalmist can we be assured of God's mercy and his grace when we call out to him from the deep? So if you are a Christian, whether you feel that you're in the deep waters this morning or, or not, look to the cross. Look to the cross. You don't have to justify yourself. You, you do not have to pretend that the bad things that you did were not really so bad. You don't have to prove that you're worthy to be loved by God. Because you were dead in your sins, and yet God made you alive in Christ let that truth soak in for just a moment. Enjoy your forgiveness. It was purchased at a high cost for you. But in his commentary on these verses, John Calvin says that anyone who comprehends verse 3 without comprehending verse 4 and believing verse 4 will necessarily hate God. You will necessarily live in terror of him and rebel against him. If you know that he has the record of sins before him and you don't know the constant companions that are with him, you will hate him. And so if you are a non-Christian here this morning, you need to hear this. Maybe you've been running from God for a long time. Maybe you, like so many people, have been, been hoping that you can make the changes necessary in you. Maybe you've been trying to cover over your sin and say, I'm not really so bad. I'm not as bad as what 
Christians might say. And maybe you've been trying to, to make up for it by, by doing good things and, and, and you know, showing that you're really good. But you will never be able to shake the guilt because God knows the record. He has it before him. He's not forgotten. He will not forget. Even if you do. And when you get tired of trying to justify yourself, trying to to clear your own record with good works, you will realize that you resent God. You know, who is he to judge me? You'll realize you reject him. He is so unreasonable, this Christian God. You'll realize you hate him. I don't want anything to do with him. But how foolish is that? How foolish is that? It's rejecting the only one who's willing and able to help. God is, the, he is as the psalmist describes him. He is as loving, as redeeming, as forgiving as Jesus Christ showed him to be on the cross. And so when we cry out to him for mercy, we find mercy. And we find that actually our hearts change toward him. We no longer resent him. We love him. And we're able to serve him with joy. And that is the point I want to end with. That that God himself is our blessedness and reward. I think that's the point of these uh, verses 5 and 6. That when we see our sin in its ugliness and God's grace in its fullness and beauty, our whole being is somehow reoriented toward God. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. The psalmist, he doesn't just seek forgiveness as, a, as though it's some sort of transactional benefit. I, I give the Lord my faith. He gives me the forgiveness and we've got a deal. No, rather, he receives forgiveness from the Lord and the Lord himself then becomes his desire. Forgiveness is not the end goal of the Christian life. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But forgiveness is not the end goal of the Christian life. It is the God-given means through which you enter into relationship with the Lord. The word wait in these verses, it could equally well be, be translated as hope. And so six times in these two verses, the psalmist is declaring that the Lord is the only one he now waits for and the sole focus of his hope in life. To know him, to relate to him in the intimacy of face-to-face fellowship with him. We we begin to experience that intimacy now as God sends his Holy Spirit to accompany us through the heights and the depths of life. But one day we will stand before the Lord in the, the fullness of that relationship. 
And God has given his word as the, the promissory note. That day is coming. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Watchmen on the city's high walls, they keep watch throughout the night. They're on high alert for the threats that come in the night. But they keep watch in anticipation of the morning, which when it comes is a relief. That's when safety and rest come. But you know, it is never in doubt during the night that the morning is coming. Even in the darkest hours of the night, the morning is definitely coming. The morning will come, and more confidently, more expectantly than that, Christians can look forward to our face-to-face fellowship with the Lord. And therefore, we can keep watch through the darkness, whatever darkness we might face. The darkness of the present moment will pass, the morning will come, and I will stand before the one that my whole focus, my, the whole hope of my life is in him. And it will come soon. So what can miserable Christians sing? Well, we can sing of our misery and of our sin. And we can sing of the darkness and the disappointments of life in this world. Because we know the one we're waiting for. And we know his companions are with him. And we know that he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Let's pray. Father, you alone know the specifics of each person's life here. And you alone know how deep the dark depths might be. So, Lord, I pray that this psalm will come as a a ray of light into those dark places. And that you will help people here, to your people here, to set their sole focus on you and, and find their hope in you. And that you might bring them through the darkness and, and um, establish them on solid ground. And Lord, I pray that um, if that is not the place where uh, we're at today, that we will hold on to this truth in preparation for a coming darkness. Lord, may this psalm come to mind and your constant companions give us comfort. Through the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory's sake. Amen.